So if you've been going to Mass for much of your life, as I have, obviously you've heard this Gospel passage before. It's a very uh, famous one and memorable. Um, but I think sometimes in hearing a lot, we can, it, it can sometimes maybe get a bit stale, you know? And one of the reasons, I think, is it's not very specific. You know, it's very vague. Love God. Okay. What does that mean? Love your neighbor. All right. And I think sometimes there's, there's an eagerness to sort of dive into the, the specifics of the commandments. What, what does it mean to love? But obviously, if God is giving us this sort of first and greatest commandment, there's, there's a reason for it. And I think there are uh, a couple of reasons why the first commandment is important to keep in mind consciously. So, first of all, we are the kinds of creatures who act for an end or a goal. And St. Thomas Aquinas says, what is first in the order of intention is last in the order of execution. In other words, the first thing you intend, what is first in the order of uh, intention, your big goal, is going to determine all your little goals, which is going to determine all the little steps you take. And the last thing that happens, the last in the order of of execution, is actually completing the big goal. So if you want to complete a, uh, a big goal, you first have to have it as a big goal. Nobody wakes up in the morning and accidentally runs a marathon. You have to intend to do something that, that big and that hard if it's going to happen. So having that intention, first of all, kind of keeps everything else in its proper place. But secondly, I think it also, in a way, helps with the specifics. Because if your intent is to love God, to please Him, well, what is when you love someone... You listen to them and you try and, and get, well, what is, it, what is it that this person wants? What is it that would make them happy? What would they like? And so part of love simply is obedience, which is from the Latin word audire, which just means to listen. So if we have as our, as our first goal to love God, it automatically implies listening to him and listening to the specifics of what he's asking for. So if you look at the Ten Commandments, this would be Commandments 2 through 10. Those are kind of the, the specifics in terms of loving God and, and loving our neighbor. But again, you're not going to pay attention to Numbers 2 through 10 if you're not really interested in number 1. So that's got to come first. The other thing is, I think the First Commandment keeps us humble. You know, because it's a tall order. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Well, who's done that recently? So I think when we have that kind of big goal, a goal that is certainly impossible of our own strength and even really hard with God's grace uh, pushing us along, it's really tough. And, and when, that's your, when that's your goal, you're reminded of how often you fail. And it keeps you humble. You know, if your goal is to not be Hitler, well, congratulations. You know, here's your trophy. Thanks for playing. Um, You've made it, you know. Or even if your goal is to simply be like, you know, the best person on the floor of your dorm. Okay, well, then you have to look around. Am I better than so-and-so? What about that person? Okay, I think I got this covered. But to have this first commandment as your goal is going to be very humbling. Because every day there's a way you can grow, and every day there will be ways that you fail. So I think practically speaking for our own spiritual life, it it helps ground us in the reality of 
our need for God's grace. But I think the first commandment is important, not just for our own sort of personal growth and development, but also, I think, for understanding the world. That we live in a world filled with people who are capable, with God's grace, of living this out. And I think that puts things in in a different light. Since the uh, the time of the the Enlightenment, the so-called Enlightenment, uh, 500 years ago, there's been this, um, I think, idea that human beings, you know, it's possible to live without religion. You know, that's not, it's not a necessary part of life. You know, you can have it if you want to, but, you know, it's not, not really great, not really necessary in terms of what it just means fundamentally to be human. Now, that would not have been thought true in Jesus' time or you know, any time leading up to the Enlightenment, people just had the sense that we're religious beings. Everybody had a religion, you know, and they might be very different from each other, but every just, everybody just kind of knew, well, of course we have this, you know, of course this is going to be part of our, our life. You know, without it, it life would be kind of dull, flat, like this is the thing that gives meaning to it. But since we're living in a post-Enlightenment era, I think a lot of people don't think of human beings as religious, that that's an optional, an optional extra. And that's a problem, I think, for two reasons. So first of all, if you, if you don't re- recognize yourself as a religious being, it's really hard to draw closer to the Lord and to really develop that part of yourself. So that's uh, one problem. But if this is something that you you sort of need in your life and you don't recognize that need, then you're going to try and fill it with something, but you're not even going to know you're filling it with something that's religious. And so I think it blocks off self-awareness. What do I mean sort of concretely? Probably about a dozen years ago or so, I read a book called The Myth of Religious Violence by Father William Cavanaugh, who's a Jesuit priest. And Father Kavanaugh in this little book was tackling the idea that somehow religion and having religion makes people in the world more violent. Sort of going off, you know, the Beatles who in their song Imagine Imagine No Religion, the idea of being, oh, it'd just be a wonderful, peaceful place, you know, whatever. So there are two, two answers that Kavanaugh gives. The first is the standard history answer. So he looks at these studies that a deep dive into the, the history of, of wars, you know, over thousands of years, looking at the causes of them and trying to determine, you know, is being more religious a cause of lots more violence? And he said, when you put it all together, no. It it doesn't seem actually to be the case. Okay. But his much more interesting answer was a question. What counts as a religion? What counts as a religion? Does religion need God? And you might think, well... Of course, Father, religion needs God. It's like, really? Do you think Buddhists aren't religious? If you saw a Buddhist monk walking down the street, you think, oh, he's not religious. I wouldn't think that. I think he's very religious. But Buddhists don't have this personal sort of God the way you know Jews and Christians and Muslims would imagine him. But they're still deeply religious people. And so what, what he does in his book is he kind of drills down and he says, you know, when you really look at 
how religion operates, the kinds of questions that it answers, what it does, how it, how it makes those answers sort of concrete, there's a lot more religions out there than we think. And some of them are very destructive. And two that he spends a fair bit of time on are Nazism and communism. Which are very interesting choices for religion because they're both sort of avowedly atheist in a way, especially communism. But he says when you look at them, they function like religions. So they both have theories of original sin. Where does evil come from? Jews, private property, okay. They both have paradise. Thousand-year Reich, workers' paradise. They both have their martyrs, you know, who died for the cause. They have their processions, their religious celebrations. They have their prophets. Uh, in, the, in the case of um, communism, they even have their incorrupt saints, which is appropriate, all saints is tomorrow. Why do you think the communists took the bo Lenin's body after he died and put it on ice and on display for people to go and to venerate? It was their imitation of the, the, the incorrupt saints in the church. Those who died and when their bodies were dug up, they, they hadn't corrupted like you would normally expect. And the communists like, oh, that's, that, that's cool. We want one of those. Let's put Lenin on ice. Yeah. But it gives you a sense that this is not, communism, Marxism is not like the hyper-rational system it would like to believe itself to be. It's a religion. It's a religion. I think a bad one. Don't be communist. But, but it is still a religion. And the fact that they would have rejected this label is, I think, part of the reason why communism was so dangerous, that there was this lack of self-awareness sort of on the part of the communists, that we're involved in a religion. And is this the right religion? Is this a true religion? Is this a good religion? Now, I mentioned the history because I think, in a way, it's also important for understanding American society today. And I think to understand American society as a Christian is to understand it in light of the fact that everybody's made in the image and likeness of God. And what that means is we are religious beings. That there is this connection that we have or can have with the divine. The, the old Latin phrase for this was capax dei, capable of God. We are capable of God, of union with God, of knowing God, of loving God. This is in, in the Christian and, and Jewish understanding, this is one of the defining features of human life. And we all have it. I mean, whether anybody's Christian or not, baptized or not, it doesn't matter. Everybody has this capability built in. Now, when we look at our, our current context, we live in a time where lots of people identify as not religious. You know, lots of surveys go out, especially to your generation, what religion are you? None. And they don't mean with like the veil and praying all the time. It's none, no religion. And I just don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. And, if, and I think to understand our society today, you have to understand that people are religious, but they're searching for something. And they don't even know that they're searching for something. But I think it's that, it's that search that is behind a lot of sort of the current division we see in our country. We often talk about it in political terms. But I think it's really 
more fundamentally, a religious question. And I think we only sort of have half the picture generally. You know, it's, I think as a society we're conscious of the existence of what's called the religious right. Okay. But when I was growing up, there was a term that was being coined, the irreligious left. So the right had religion and the left didn't. And I think that's not true. It's just they had a different religion. And I think when we sort of appreciate that there is a fundamental sort of religious conflict or disagreement that's going on, it gives us a better understanding of, of what's going on in our world. And it's interesting, this is not, um, certainly not exclusively a view on the right of the left. That's the interesting thing. Recently, there have been a couple people, so I'll quote here, firmly ensconced on, on the sort of political left who see the, the same thing. One of them would be uh, Andrew uh, Sullivan, uh, who... Um, Andrew Sullivan is best known as kind of the godfather of the gay rights movement in the United States. Uh, and, um, and he said recently, he was talking about... Uh, Dave Chappelle's latest Netflix special and the protest that erupted at Netflix after that. And so a guy showed up for a one-man counter-protest and, and uh, Sullivan wrote, uh, a self-promoting jokester showed up with a placard with the words, we like jokes, to represent an opposing view. He was swiftly accosted by a man who ripped the poster apart, leaving the dude with just a stick, prompting the assailant to shout, he's got a weapon. Pushed back by the other protesters, he was then confronted by a woman in, in front of him, shaking a tambourine and yelling in his face, repent, repent, repent. That's religious language. That's religious language. And also, uh, more recently, uh, Professor John McWhirter, who's Associate Professor of Linguistics at Columbia University, is an African-American gentleman, uh, an atheist, um, and... Uh, self-professed sort of on the left of American politics. And, and he's really put forward, you know, he, linguistics is his main thing, but he also writes about race. And he said, you know, the conflict about race recently, he said one of the things that's popped up and he's noticed is uh, the idea of, of anti-racism, not just like simply being against racism, but against as a kind of religious sort of point of view. And he says, we can, o we, can move in f we can only move in full awareness that this is a religion, not like a religion, but an actual religion. It must be clear that I do not mean religion as a comparison. I genuinely mean that we are witnessing the birth of a new religion, just as the Romans witnessed the birth of Christianity. Early Christians did not think of themselves as a religion. They thought of themselves as bearers of truth, in contrast to all the other belief systems, whatever they chose to call themselves. And, therefore, we must process them not as crazed, but as parishioners. And then he goes on and describes in detail why he thinks this is a religion. But I offer all of this because, you know, I'm sort of very keenly aware, not only of those of you who are here, but of the 500 plus number of your peers on campus here who uh, are, were baptized Catholics 
and, and don't come to Mass anymore. And I think we need to get away, you know, in our evangelization from this idea that people are genuinely non-religious. I don't think that's true. I think people are intensely religious. And they're always, in lo- they're always looking for something. They're always looking for something for that ultimate bear of truth and rightness and goodness. And if that's what people are looking for, that's what we have to embody in our own lives and what we have to offer to others. So I say all of this to you for you to reflect both in terms of what you see in the culture around us, but also more specifically in thinking about your interactions with your classmates, with your peers. What is it that they're looking for and where are they finding it? And perhaps where ought they to be finding it? Because Jesus today in the gospel makes very clear where he thinks we ought to find it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself.